Okay. Hi, guys. Welcome. Hi, Nahama. How are you? It's good to hey, see Rafine. you. Good. Good to see you. Thank you. You know, you know, Cheryl Traber and I went on a mission a long time ago with, with uh, Lori. That's how oh, we know each gosh, other. We together? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That is yeah, really. Yeah, we reconnected on one of your Zooms. It was so great to see her name. I went, oh, my God, we were on that trip. I love that. Don't you love that? Yeah. That's, that's awesome. It's a small All Jewish right. world. It's a small Jewish world, and it's big also. Hi, <laughs> Karen. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. So we are on um, chapter 16. And the last verse we did was verse 21. And we were talking about the, um, the person who's wise in the heart, right? And the, the person of discernment who like eventually it just becomes natural to him. It becomes like a habit, um, you know, and how powerful that is when we're able to bring what's in our mind down into our heart. Okay. So, and that was at Sherry's house outside. So we talked about using our common sense, our seichel. Um, and, and I did mention that I am traveling you know, now, obviously. Um, but I, I would love to talk about bringing this class back in person as well as in Zoom. I'm thinking of making it into a hybrid class as long as the Zoomers understand that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pay my primary focus to those who are in person. Um, so anybody who would be interested in coming back in person, uh, just, you know, send me a private message and let me know. And then we'll see. We'll see where we'll go with that. Cause it was so nice getting together at Sherry's house and it, it made me miss seeing everybody in real life. Okay. So hi, Dana. <laughs> nice to see you. All right. So we are on chapter 16, verse 22. Here we go. Makor chayim seichel ba'alav. There we have that word again, guys. Seichel. Makor chayim seichel ba'alav. Intelligence is a wellspring of life to one who has it. Makor, the word makor in Hebrew means a source. Um, sometimes it's, it's used to mean like a fountain, right? Like a source of water. Um, hold on. It is asking me to, oh, there we go. Everybody who comes in now needs to be admitted from the waiting room. Zoom has changed their rules. So I have to figure out how to get around that. Okay. So makor means a source. Like a, in this case, a source of water, like a, a wellspring, a fountain. So intelligence is like a fountain of life to one who has it. Umusar evilim ivelet, and the moral correction of skeptics in their skepticism. So musar, here we have right the word. Hi, Julie, welcome. The word musar here translated as moral correction of skeptics in their skepticism, right? So what we're seeing here is that a person who has wisdom in his heart, this is what we were talking about before, right? That your wisdom doesn't just stay in your mind, but it actually travels to your heart. It becomes a part of your instinct. It becomes a part of your personhood. It just becomes a part of your, um, just a part of your intuition. Like sometimes you'll just know something and you won't even know how you know it or where you know it from or where did you learn it? But you, you just know it. You just know it to be true, right? And usually that's the product of having worked on something or having known something over and over again. There's a, a, a ramble for those of you who, um, who get our Shabbat emails every week. 
Uh, and by the way, if you don't get it, please, if you, if you would like to get it, please let me know. So every week we have what we call the ramble. So somebody writes, hi, Naomi, welcome. So somebody, either one of the rabbis or me, writes just a little kind of, you know, thought about something that happened that week or some sort of insight. So this week, um, you'll see it tomorrow morning, but I'm going to give you guys a little sneak peek just because you get bonus content here at Thursday Moser. So I wrote a little article about my husband and I were in New Jersey last week and we were going shoe shopping for him. And the guy, the salesman who was selling him the shoes, um, he had been selling shoes for 31 years. And he was very proud to tell us that. But watching this guy in action was hilarious. Like he says to my husband, what shoes are you wearing? So he says, floor shines. So he says, floor shines. So he takes off the shoe. Ah, yeah, I, these are rock boards. These are not floor shines, you know? And then he, whatever, we had this whole funny conversation, which you, you'll read about tomorrow. But I was thinking to myself, like, this guy is such a pro. He's been doing shoes for 31 years. He knows shoes, you know, like my father-in-law, who's been a salesman for, oh, 50 years. You know, he still knows item numbers and order numbers and customers from decades ago. Why? Because anything that you do over and over and over and over and over becomes a part of you, right? And if that's your profession, that's what you do. You know, if food is your profession, you know food. Um, I know Dana and Laura, they do custom window dress, well, window treatments, right? For commercial, I think, uh, right? So you you know that's you know that that's your uh, that's your malacha, as they say in Yiddish. That's your business. That's what you do, right? Um, you know, at this point, I can just look at my kid and figure out if they have a fever. It's just anything that you do over and over again, it's going to become a part of you. So if a person is engaged in Musr, if a person is engaged in moral development of themselves, and you do that regularly over a long period of time, you're going to get good at it. It's not possible not to. And you're going to also develop an instinct for it where you know, before something bad even happens, you'll just sort of have this like spidey sense, you know, uh, 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 this is a muster moment coming down the pipeline. Okay, 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 I don't want to mess this up, right? The more you do it, the more it'll become a part of you. So here we're talking about um, how intelligence is a wellspring of life to the one who has it. It's going to nourish you. Just like a fountain of water is nourishing and it's ever replenishing, a person who has worked hard on themselves to develop this kind of moral instinct will discover that it's going to feed him and sustain him and nourish him and be there for him. And <clears throat> the moral correction of skeptics in their skepticism, right? So the, the opposite is also true that the person who needs to, who needs Musser, right? That this, this fountain of wisdom that exists, maybe for him, it doesn't exist inside of him. It exists outside of him. But even a person who's skeptical, who's like, I don't know, what's all that, what's all that muster business? Ah, that's, that's stupid. I don't need that stuff, right? But if he ever were interested in opening his eyes and seeing the wisdom for what it's for, it can help him too. There is nobody who's beyond repair as long as they're willing to try, as long as they're willing to be open to it. And that's all. That's all that's required. A little bit of openness a little bit of vulnerability, a little bit of humility can go a long, long way. Okay, so to the commentary. If the wise in heart does not achieve an understanding of moral wisdom, right? Just referring back to the previous verse, he can grasp it by his intelligence, a fine sense of perception of hidden truths 
and supernal concepts, which even imbues him at times with flashes of divine inspiration. So this is the, the seichel that he's talking about here. This seichel, this wisdom, this sense in his head, right? That a person, even things that seem out of reach, a person can develop and aspire to, a person can do. And if you think about anything in your life that you once looked at and said, I could never do that, and then you did it, right? I remember even being a kid in math class and I would like flip ahead to the back of the book. I don't know, I always like to flip ahead to the back of the book for some reason. <laughs> and I would look at the equations and the problems, you know, and I would be like, this is crazy stuff. I can never do this. What, what is this? Is this even English? This is like hieroglyphics, I'm sorry. Then, you know, you would go through the course and you would go through the year. And by the end of the year, you were able to do that. You know, or when I first started doing like SAT prep and I would look at all those big words and I would say, what? That's, that's way out of my reach. Who can remember all those big words? And then you practice. Just like the way my husband likes to say it is Hashem drop boxes an idea on your head. You know, you just get an idea. Then you're like, oh my gosh, that was like a stroke of genius. Where did that come from? Well, it came from above. It came from, you know, divine inspiration. You know, I, I spoke to my cousin, my cousin, Miriam Covell, some of you know her. And she is, this is like a famous thing now. She's a matchmaker. I don't know how many of you are watching Jewish matchmaking on uh, Netflix. It's a big, big show right now. So my cousin is a matchmaker and she has fixed up, I don't know, at least, at least two dozen couples. And sometimes I ask her, like, sometimes, you know, I hear that someone's engaged and they come from totally different walks of life. I'm thinking, and I'll say to her, how on earth did you think to introduce these two people to each other? You know, and she'd be like, Hashem popped the idea in my head. You know, it's just, you know, sometimes you just don't even know. So here's the thing. The person always has to try to do something good. And you look and you try and you think and you wonder. And then, right, you, you did your effort. You did what you could do. And then, oh my gosh, all of a sudden, like you might find this idea percolating in your head. And you'll be like, now, where did that idea even come from? And the answer is, excuse me, that's like a flash of divine inspiration, right? So... I'm just pulling up the verse again. Okay. So this intelligence is his fountain of life. This intelligence is a fountain of life. Though skeptics flout moral wisdom and discipline, casting philosophical doubt on it, including its roots in the fear of God, the same faculty of intelligence chastises them, dissipating their doubts and obfuscations. Okay. So first of all, let's go to what it says that this is a fountain of life. So this ability to acquire wisdom, right, where you'll get flashes of inspiration, or you'll just get a really good idea, right, or you'll just see that through your hard work, through your you know hard work of working on yourself and trying to be the best person, trying to understand the world as best as you can, trying to understand other people as best as you can, and you'll find, right, that you, you get divine assistance along the way. 
right? That's a fountain of life. That is what's going to nourish you on this journey called life, because we all need to see that our efforts are bearing fruit. If you keep trying to do something and you never see any results, it's exhausting. And it's like burnout. It's, it's really hard to keep trying to do the right thing, you know, if you don't see any results. But when you see that your pursuit of wisdom is bearing fruit and it's helping you be more intelligent about your choices and it's helping you be more intelligent about life, right? Then that's like, it's so, it's so nourishing. It's so refreshing. That's why it's referred to as a fountain of life. It's sustaining. That's what sustained us. The, the, the pursuit of wisdom and then the awareness that the wisdom is, is helping you to live your best life and to be the best person. Now, the second part of the verse tells us that sometimes intelligence in the hands of the wrong person can be used to do the wrong thing, right? You look at some of the world's greatest atheists. They were brilliant, brilliant, right? Uh, Sam Harris and Stephen Hawking and these, you know, famous atheists. They, you know, let's not make the mistake of thinking, how could they think? That's just stupid. No, it's a lot of times intelligence can lead people away from God. People attribute their intelligence to themselves. People attribute intelligence just to evolution, right? Or they'll, they'll use their knowledge of the universe to explain God away. But that same intelligence can also lead them to God. So intelligence is a tool, just like everything else that can be used for the good or for the bad, right? And obviously, if a person is morally inclined, then their intelligence will take them to really beautiful places because you can use your intelligence to make this world a better place. And intelligence can also, in the hands of the wrong person, in the hands of a, of a you know, an evil genius, so to speak, right? There are people who have used their genius to mastermind evil and to hurt people and to do terrible things. But the person with intelligence will eventually come to at least at least, even if they don't admit it, that somewhere along the line, their intelligence will give them a little glimmer that there's more to life than that. There's a quote by Charles Darwin, of all people, who said that when he considers the human eye, the complexity of the human eye, he can't explain evolution when he thinks about that. So here is a highly, highly intelligent person who denied the existence of God and who had a whole theory of how this world came to be without God, which, by the way, I don't believe that evolution and uh, belief in God are mutually exclusive, but that's a whole other talk. But he was in, in, intellectually honest enough to admit that what he had learned about the human eye was not compatible with evolution. So there you see what this verse is talking about, like a teeny tiny little chink in the armor, right? Where a person who was looking for more to explain the mysteries of the universe, their intelligence could actually lead them there if they're willing to be humble and intellectually honest. So we see here that this intelligence can be a fountain it can, be, uh, it can be sustaining when we use our intelligence to try to be a better person, when we use the wisdom that we've learned and we see the results, we see that it brings us to be a better person and that we feel like we're accomplishing something, we've gotten somewhere in our, in our journey to become better people, then, that's the, then the wisdom is a nourishing, sustaining fountain 
that you know gives us the strength to keep going. And intelligence in the hands of a negative person can be used negatively, but it can also lead that person toward truth if they're willing to be honest enough to admit it. Okay, any thoughts or comments on verse 22? Some of us have a very dear friend that's an eye surgeon in town. And she said that if you, um, if you were doing surgery on an eye and you could see what was going on, you would believe in God. Huh. Is that Julie Belkin? You would have, well, I wasn't going to mention, yeah. But she said you would have no doubt that there was a God. I was thinking the same insane. thing. <laughs> have you heard her say that? She always says that. Yeah. I always think yeah. about this with regards to the birth of a child. Like, I don't understand how could you have an obstetrician, particularly anyone who's been involved in fertility issues, who sees what a miracle it is that, that two human beings can conceive a child and that it goes from this microscopic speck to a whole entire human being. You know, people say, oh, this is my miracle baby. And they usually mean that that child was born through, you know, infertility treatments and or fertility treatments, I should say, right. And there was difficulty and there was waiting and there was crying and there was praying and, you know, perhaps it was very expensive and that's a miracle baby. But the truth of the matter is that a baby that's born without any of those interventions is an even bigger miracle baby. It, or uh, the same, we don't have to quantify. Mm-hmm. It's just as big of a miracle baby. Any, and I don't understand how can an, how can any obstetrician not believe in God? Seeing that miracle happen, you know, day by day, week by week, it's just mind blowing how anybody could think that that could just happen by itself. We're just used to it. That's all. So we don't think of it as a miracle, but it is miraculous. And then after a child is born and you see how they go through these developmental milestones you know, and, and that a child could speak, that's such a miracle. You know, at first your baby is born, it's like a puppy. You know what I mean? It has to pee, it has to poop, it has to eat, it has to sleep. And then all of a sudden, like a human, or not all of a sudden, gradually, a human being starts to move past what a puppy can do. And it's capable of intelligent thought and it's capable of receptive language. And it's, it's just unbelievable. So yeah, that's a great point, Sherry. Thank you. Any other thoughts on verse 22? Okay, 23. The heart of a wise person gives his mouth intelligence and adds received learning to his lips. So received learning here is the word lekach. We had that a couple verses ago. Lekach is a lesson that you learn from somebody else, right? So we're talking here about clear speech and clear thought, right? That a person, um, the heart of a wise person gives his mouth intelligence, being able to speak clearly, to be able to explain your words clearly and the ability to explain your words clearly comes first from the ability to think clearly, 
right? Organized thought to be able to know. Now, here's the fascinating thing. And I think probably many of you will relate to this. Like I said, or the previous verse, a person who is engaged in regular study of Torah, of character development, will find that their thoughts become more clear. What do I mean by that? I mean that life's situations, which previously could have felt very confusing and very overwhelming and very hard to figure out, that what you now have, and I, I think this is like, the Torah is so brilliant that I can't, I don't even have the words to explain it. Whatever words I have are a gift from Hashem, but nothing that I say could really encapsulate it. But what you'll find when you study Torah on a regular basis is that you now do have, you know, almost like a sorting system for life's challenges. Like, oh, this is a challenge of Lashon Hara. Oh, this is a challenge of arrogance. Oh, this is a challenge of envy. Oh, this is a challenge of honoring my parents. Oh, this is a challenge of taking my blessings for granted right? It like, it, it's like a professional organizer came in and created all these bins and labels for you. And now all you have to do is put things in the correct bin. So whereas before things could be so confusing, like you might feel very upset by a situation and very torn and you don't know what to do and you don't know how to think about it. Is this my fault? Is this somebody else's fault? Should I do this? Should I say this? And you're so confused and you don't know what to do or say. But as you study Torah regularly, you find that your thoughts clear up. It's like the sun comes out after a storm and you're like, oh, of course I shouldn't say that. That's the, you know, that's the mitzvah in the Torah to not engage in verbal abuse. Oh, of course I shouldn't say that. That's the mitzvah in the Torah not to repeat stories about people that other people told me. Oh, this is the mitzvah in the Torah of not sharing someone else's private, you know, business. Oh, this is the mitzvah in the Torah of giving 10% of my money to tzedakah. Oh, you know what I mean? So it, it gives you, Torah gives you clear thought. And once you have clear thought, you will then have the ability to express things clearly. So you might say to someone, you know what, I'm, I'm so sorry, but I'm not comfortable answering that question. And you're perfectly clear and you're perfectly confident and you know what the right thing is to do. That doesn't always make it, by the way, easy to do, right? And also it doesn't always make it easy to understand, right? Just because you have a sorting system doesn't necessarily mean it's easy to always figure out what goes in which category, but it gives you a framework. It gives you a rubric, and that is extraordinarily clarifying, right? Last night when I spoke here in Toronto about relationships, um, and there were a few couples in the room who had come, you know, together, and this one guy, it was so sweet. It was such a sweet question. He raised his hand, and he said, you know, yeah, because I was talking about, um, you know, really like emotional intimacy, like letting another person into your emotional world and being a safe, trusted person for another person to, you know, share their emotional world. So this guy says to me, you know, he says, I, you talk about like, you know, sharing your feelings and sharing your emotional reality. He goes, what if you're like really bad at it? He goes, I, I, I have, a, I, I thought it was so brave of him to ask this question. He said, hi, Tammy, welcome. Um, he said, you know, sometimes like I try to, like if something's bothering me, I try to share what I'm feeling, but I find that I like, the more I say, the more I mess it up. Like, I'm just really not good at it. And I, I so sometimes I don't say anything because I figure, why should I say something that'll be taken the wrong way? Or, you know, my wife will take it personally. 
So I was so impressed by what this guy was saying, you know, and, you know, because I've studied Torah, I said, you know, I want to tell you something, anything that you do over a long period of time, you will get better at, you know, and your, if your intentions are really good, right? Like I said, how does a person become better at reading? You read. And how does a person become better at riding a bike? You ride a bike. How does a person become better at playing piano? You have to play more piano. So how do you get better at speaking about your feelings? You have to speak about your feelings, you know? And I said, it's like a muscle. It was really like a muster. It was, it was the same thing as any character trait that we talk about in muster. If you're not good at communication, you should communicate more, not less, right? Because the goal is to get better at it. Uh, and, you know, and I, and I said, and if your wife sees that you're trying, even though you're not that good at it and you're not comfortable with it, or I should say, especially if you're not good at it or you're not comfortable with it, she'll appreciate your efforts so much more that you're pushing through something that's really difficult for you for the sake of your relationship. So even if some of your words come out clumsy, you know, my guess is that she'll be forgiving because she really so appreciates what you're trying to do, you know? So because I have Torah, I was so clear on that question, you know, which the question was, I'm not good at something. So should I stop doing it? Right. The Torah is a guidebook mostly. I mean, of course there's philosophy and of course there's psychology, but really the Torah is a guidebook about behaviors. How should we act? Right. And we've spoken so many times in this class about how our actions condition our attitudes and our character. It's not just that our actions and our character, you know, inform our attitudes. Sorry. It's not just that our act our it's not just that our mindset and our attitude inform our actions, but that our actions over time will actually inform our attitudes and our character. That's what I was trying to say. So my point here is that clear thought and its corollary, which is clear speech, is a function of exposing yourself to regular Torah study, which is an extremely clarifying activity. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. Okay, commentary for 23. The wise of heart of the previous verses will find his mouth informed or inspired with the ability to express the truth of moral wisdom, right? So when you've learned and you studied and you've taken your learning and study to heart and really tried to make it a part of you, you will find as a, you know, kind of as a bonus, right? You'll, found, you'll find your mouth informed or inspired with the ability to express the truth of moral wisdom. You know, sometimes you know something, but you're like, I, I just can't explain it. But that over time, you will be able to explain it. You will find yourself more willing and not willing, more able and equipped to explain it, thus to increase awareness and knowledge by clear thought. So I would actually be really interested to hear if any of you have had this experience where you found that over time, your thoughts are clarifying, you're able to explain things more clearly than you used to because of your exposure to Torah study. Does anyone have a, a reflection or experience to share on that front? Yeah, I 100% agree. The whole in, in every place in my life, in my work life, in my family life, um, 
I'm always like in my, you know, it's voted to do it. I'm always like thanking God for like making me Jewish and giving me his Torah because it's literally, it touches every single, every single place in my life. Absolutely. I That's quote you elaborately. <laughs> That's so beautiful, Dana. Thank you. If anyone has a specific example, I think it would be so helpful to hear. I would say um, I would totally agree with Dana. Um, this is very helpful after your father dies and you're in charge and other people are not in charge <laughs> and you have to be sensitive to everybody and you have to be sensitive to everybody. And it's very challenging because you're emotional and, um, but you're still in charge of things and, uh, end of life issues and things that are really sensitive and, um, but you still have to keep a boundary and say, I have to stand in dad's shoes because he made me in charge and, you know, medical power of attorney, financial, whatever. But I hear what you're saying, but this is how we're going to do it. And it's very challenging. And that's why I think we all do muster hopefully with you so that on the days where it's not, um, the most trying of issues like that, we practice and practice and practice. So for the really, really hard days, we have um, sensitivities that we never would have imagined we would be doing. And so when we falter, we're like, well, at least I practice those things and I can, and hopefully people will give us grace <laughs> on those difficult days when we're just being as human as possible. Yeah. You know, um, Sherry, I have to say I was so beyond impressed by, you know, I, I was obviously just at the Shiva house for a little bit, but, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, different personalities and lifestyles, you know, within the family. And I, I just was so impressed with how you handled, you know, trying your best to, to blend it all into one cohesive experience. And I give you so much credit for that. Well, you were there with dad and I see you. Yeah. Um, thank you. But it is, it's, uh, how are you sensitive to everybody? And sometimes you can't even do it, but you just have to do your best and say, God will hopefully help me through this. Yeah. But it's it gotta be gratifying to know that you have wisdom to draw from. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's why we do this. So when we're falling and drowning and can't breathe and coming up for air, yeah, we at least grab for the toolkit that you give us because that's not when you can learn it. You can't learn it when you're drowning and right. you can't learn it when you're, you have to be prepared for a couple of years from now. Exactly. So that's why the learning exactly. is so important. Exactly. When my, dad, when my dad was sick and, go, and and passing, I said the whole time, I mean, even in his eulogy speech, that I was so grateful that I got the, God gave me the solution before the problem, the maka before the, what is it, really? The refua before the maka. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't have done it, but I just couldn't have. Wow. Yeah. Mine, Dana. Very good. Uh, Thank you. Heather, did you want to share something? Or Naomi, somebody was starting to say I, I, Yeah, um, developing the attitude of gratitude. Um, when I first became involved with more observant 
community. I heard everybody walking around all the time, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. And I said, what is all this? Why is everybody <laughs> saying Baruch Hashem all the time? Um, but over the years, you begin to open your eyes and see all the reasons you have to be grateful. And I find myself walking around now saying Baruch Hashem. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, it's a habit. It's a habit. It, yeah, you, you work on it and it gets stronger um, and the world gets better for it. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting you mentioned that, Naomi, because I find that, you know, saying Baruch Hashem, which literally means blessed is Hashem, blessed is God or thank God. Um, it's it's just a habit for me from growing up. That's how I was raised. And I, I you know, I sort of had the opposite experience from you when when I started to um, to work with people who were not raised that way, you know, who were in the non-observant community or whatever, I don't know what to call it. Um, I found that I would think twice before saying Baruch Hashem because people, you know, I didn't want to say something that was foreign to people. So I actually found that that experience of sort of editing it, because I knew people didn't understand what it means, made me more cognizant of it because beforehand it was almost like a verbal tip. You just say it all the time. Everybody says it all the time. You know, like my father-in-law always makes jokes, oh, how are you doing? And my kids will say, Baruch Hashem. And he said, I asked you how you're, I asked you how you're doing. I didn't ask you for your religion. <laughs> so, so, you know, you just say without thinking, but because I had to start being like almost hyper-conscious of only speaking English in front of people who didn't understand those Hebrew phrases, it made me more cognizant, even if I didn't say it out loud, of thinking, yeah, you know what? Blessings to God for this. You know, uh, how, how are your married kids doing? They're doing great. Blessed, blessed is God. Yes, blessed is God that my kids are married. You know, uh, blessed is God that whatever, you know, is going on in my life that's positive. And it, it made me think of it even more. Yeah. Heather, were you going to share something? Um. Oh my, I was thinking of so many. Um, I was thinking about just how, if I didn't know about humility and like actively working on it, I would definitely be like the correcting someone, like when they make a mistake, as opposed to saying something like, oh, is it possible it's, it's this? And then they're like, oh yeah, you're right. I made a mistake, right? It, it is that. And it just comes off like, so much more palatable yeah you know and then the other one I was thinking is just knowing like that I have a spiritual bank account um right and that like I I would absolutely not get angry at somebody if I knew I was on a game show and could win a million dollars so I every time my parents come to town I'm just like I'm like this is such a great challenge and I'm gonna honor my parents and I'm gonna win the million dollars you know <laughs> And and if I didn't have that, like I wouldn't have parents coming to visit me all the time, you know. That's incredible, so, Heather. That's really, thank really you. Cool. <laughs> that is very I, I have to say also I had a muster win yesterday, so I'm gonna share it with you guys. Um, so as as I mentioned, I'm here in Toronto. So while I was walking through the airport, my family text chat, there was a, a, one of my kids made a comment that really bothered me. They weren't trying to be rude or mean or anything like that, but they made a comment about an experience that they had in their childhood. And then a couple of the other kids weighed in and said, oh yeah, me too, me too. And I, in my head, I took it personally. And I was like, what are they trying to say? Like, oh, I wasn't a good enough mom or I should have done things differently, you know? And then because of my constant exposure to Musser and to Torah study, you know, I said to myself, 
and my instinct was to jump in and either say, oh, I'm sorry, or like really to try to insert myself into the conversation. And I was like, okay, first of all, like you said, Heather, humility, this is not about me and I don't have to make it about me. And the second character trait that really came into the fore, which is something that I, I have tried to do so much work on over the years, but particularly the last few years that I've been teaching muster classes is the character trait of silence because it's so hard for me. And I'm like, you do not have to say anything, not a comment, not an emoji, not a reaction, nothing. Just let them be, let them express what they need to express. Let them have their solidarity as siblings. This is not about you and you don't have to say anything. And I, I was like, like three times, I was like, okay, I'm just going to say this. And then I was like, Rahi, Rahi, I see you. <laughs> I see what you're doing. Stop, stop it. You can say nothing. I know you can do this. And I passed my test and I said nothing. And I, I realized like, it's, it's not about me. I don't have to take it personally. It's not an indictment on me. Like, again, that's, you know, kind of like an arrogant way to think that everybody's thinking of you when they say things, you know, and it was just such a muster win. And I was thinking to myself, like even a year ago, I don't know that I would have passed the test totally. I might've had said less than I would have said previously, but to say nothing, you know, that's a huge muster win. So just wanted to share my win with all of you, my muster fellow uh, students. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's, it's so, this is the gratification that I was talking about earlier, how gratifying it is when you see that your study is literally paying real dividends in the real world. And that feeling of how good you feel about yourself when you pass that test, it's like you're saying, Heather, it's like a million dollars. Like nothing can compare to that. Yeah. Okay. Anything else on 23? Okay, so let's do one more. 24. Suf dvash imri noam matok lenefesh Pleasant words, right? So the, the Hebrew for this is um, where are we? Suf dvash imri noam. So the word the word noam, well, well let's go, let's go in order. Suf dvash is a honeycomb. Right. Many people are familiar with the Hebrew word devash, right? From uh, Rosh Hashanah, devash is honey. So tzuf devash is a honeycomb. Imre noam. Imre means words of. Noam means sweetness. So some of you are familiar with the name noam. It's a, it's a Hebrew name for a boy. It's, it means sweetness. And the Hebrew name for a girl is naami, which is my daughter's name. Nomi, we call her Naomi, whatever different ways to pronounce it. But the Hebrew word is pronounced Naomi. Now, Naomi was a character in the book of Ruth. She was Ruth's mother-in-law and she was, she was named Naomi. And so when our daughter was, when we knew we were having a daughter and she was due right around the holiday of Shavuot, which is when we read the book of Ruth in the synagogue, she was actually born on the holiday itself. Um, we decided to name her Naomi. And she was actually just asking me yesterday, um, what the name means. And I was telling her, it means that you're so sweet. And we named you that because you were so sweet. She's like, well, you didn't know I was going to be sweet when I was born. Yeah. So we did, we did know that you were going to be sweet. So that word Noam, right. We, we also say that word when we put the Torah back into the ark, right. And we say, or when we lift and wrap the Torah, rather, we say another verse from this book, Noam, 
right? That the Torah, its ways are ways of pleasantness, right? And all its paths are peaceful. That the Torah is meant to be practiced with pleasantness. It's not meant to be harsh. It's not meant to be radical. It's not meant to be extremist. It's meant to be practiced with pleasantness. So that's what this word means. So words of pleasantness are like a honeycomb. Matok lenefesh. Matok means sweet. Sweet to the soul. Umar pela etzem. And healing to the bones. So now we're talking about a person who speaks pleasantly, who speaks pleasant words, right? So we're talking about a person who has this wisdom that we've been talking about previously, and they utilize their wisdom to speak words of pleasantness, right? Or at least in my case, to refrain from words that are not pleasant, right? And and in your case, uh, Sherry, with your experience with running this Shiva, I'm sure you had many opportunities to use your speech to sort of say kind things and smooth things over. You know, I saw you in action, so I know you sure did that, right? But how powerful are those words of pleasantness that are fueled by wisdom? When you hear those words, you just think to yourself, oh, that's such a nice thing to say. Nobody knows how hard you had to think and work for those pleasant words to come out of your mouth, right? It takes intentionality and conscious planning to be kind. I just, I just saw this little video that I posted on my Instagram story about this girl and her mom. I, I think the way it started was her mom wrote her a little note in the morning before she went to school and it said, you are amazing with a smiley face. And then she goes to school and she sees there's a girl who looks sad on the bus. So she slides without noticing, she slides the girls, she slides the note into the girl's backpack pocket. And then that girl gets to school and she's sitting in the classroom and she sees a girl, a girl sitting next to her who got a D on a test. So she slips the note in between the pages of the test. And then that student is walking through the halls and sees the custodian vacuuming and she slips the note on top of the vacuum cleaner, you know, and on and on it goes around the circle. And eventually it makes it back to the first girl who, 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 you know, who got it from her mother. So these are words of pleasantness, right? But it takes consciousness and thought, oh, there's a girl who just got a D on her test oh, maybe she feels sad. Well, maybe I can be the one to bring some joy into her life. Oh, I know I'm going to slip this note, right? It takes wise thinking to fuel pleasant words. Okay. So the commentary says when the wise in heart speaks with a harmony and illumination of clear knowledge, he will impart the sweetness of reason to the apparently arbitrary dogmas of morality. What this means is that sometimes the rules of the Torah seem arbitrary. They don't necessarily seem sweet, right? A perfect example is kosher. Let's say, and we see this, we see this very often in our community. Let's say one member of the family decides that they want to keep kosher. It can cause a lot of disharmony, right? The person can say, what do you mean you can't? You can't eat in my house anymore? I, I think there's even a book that somebody wrote called, what do you mean you can't eat in my house anymore? It's about conflicts between, you know, what we like to call multi-religion, uh, no, how does it go? Um, di- multi-observance and families or something like that. You know, when you have p- different members of families who observe Judaism differently and it can cause a lot of conflict. What do you mean? You, you can't eat her for Thanksgiving? What are you trying to say? I can't bring over a, a casserole for Shabbat? You know, what are you, what are you saying? You won't eat off my dishes? What do you, we can't go to my favorite restaurant for my anniversary? You know, and it can cause a lot of disharmony. And I know some of you are living this in real life and it can be really hard. 
So it might seem that these dogmas are arbitrary. Who decided that you can, what, this is not kosher enough for you? It's kosher enough for me. We, we raised you kosher enough, right? So what can this person do? With the harmony and illumination of clear knowledge, he will impart the sweetness of reason. What does this mean? Different observance levels does not have to mean that people are in conflict. If the various parties in the relationship are committed to clear knowledge, meaning they're not getting emotionally triggered, to sweet words, meaning they're not getting angry and arrogant and hostile, then we can all use our reason to go back to what I said before, that the Torah, its ways are ways of pleasantness. And I have seen this over and over again in families. I don't remember if I shared with you guys, or maybe it was another group, a podcast with Aliza Bulau and her husband. Did I share that in this group? Or I don't know if any of you heard it. I'm gonna share it with you. Aliza Bulau is a friend of mine who lives in Denver, Colorado. She converted to Judaism when she was a young adult and she's extremely passionate, passionate about Judaism. And she's a teacher of teachers. She's a mentor. She has this whole program, this whole leadership program of women in Judaism called Core. And her husband is no longer observant and they are happily married and they have a beautiful relationship. And the two of them talk about how they make it work. I think those two, among other people who have not made a podcast about it, but I have seen many, many cases where people use their wisdom and their kind words to make a relationship work, even in the face of extreme differences of philosophy, viewpoints, opinions, you know, that it can be done. And this idea that the wisdom can fuel the sweetness right? It's almost like revolutionary because the way we think about it is, well, some people are sweet and some people are not that sweet, but being wise can help you be sweet, right? Like Heather was saying about honoring her parents. A lot of this stuff is about a mindset. So the commentary concludes the words, his words carry the total pleasure that comes with spiritual concepts. They are sweet to the soul, but also bring physical health so that one's whole being is filled with strength. Now, don't forget that King Solomon wrote these words two and a half thousand years ago. And science has really done so much research about the mind-body connection. Because if you look at the end of the verse, it says it's sweet to the soul and health to the bones. That when a person is using their wisdom and their words are sweet, everything about you is going to calm down. You know, some people get stress headaches and some people get ulcers and some people get hives. And, you know, we have all kinds of physical symptoms when we're under stress. But if we can use our total wisdom to act sweetly and to bring calm and peace to the situation, that's not just good for our souls. That's also really good for our bodies. Okay, any final thoughts on verse 24? heard a quote yesterday from Godale Fenster and I was trying to like understand it and I think you just really nailed it he said that wisdom is the memory without the emotion huh. so I think that using that Elizabeth Lowe of like because I'm familiar with that story is that's really what it is like it's she's using her wisdom it's the memory of what she's gone through but it's without the emotion yeah yeah wow 
that's very beautiful. Uh, you know, if you listen to the podcast, you'll see she doesn't she doesn't not have emotion. She just has found a way to make sense of it. You know, very powerful. Okay, any other final thoughts before we close today? Okay, thanks for participating, everybody. It was so great to see you all. Thanks for coming on. And I will see you, God willing, next week. Thanks for uh, having class. My <laughs> Thanks. Pleasure. My pleasure. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Good, Good job. Good job. Good job.